Welcome to the Hidden Archives. I am your curator, Nicole Clark. This week's episode comes to you a day early. Consider this our holiday gift. We here at the Hidden Archives wanted you to be able to enjoy tonight's story as close to Christmas as possible. The next episode will come to you on the standard release schedule. This will give our team one extra day to enjoy the holidays. In his story, The Kit Bag, Algernon Blackwood states, It is difficult to say exactly at what point fear begins, when the causes of that fear are not plainly before the eyes. So please allow me to put this plainly before you. If you choose to enter the hidden archives, if you choose to study the tomes, if you choose to take this journey with me, you do so at your own risk. Profanity and disturbing content may follow. This is your warning. Many Christmas stories take place in rural small towns. In these places, everyone knows everyone, which means secrets are hard to keep. However, as we will find out in tonight's presentation, trying to keep these secrets and hiding horrors from the past can be devastating for the entire community. Now that I put all the pieces together, now that I know how everything went to shit from start to finish, I think I can finally tell my story. However, this process has taken me several years. So to whoever is reading this, I sincerely apologize, but I'm not much of a writer, and some of the events are a bit hazy. I just wanted to tell you, whoever you are, what happened and how as best I can. If someone had taken the same courtesy from me, then, well, maybe things wouldn't have happened the way they did. It's just as much your responsibility to read and understand this as it is mine to let you know about it. So, settle in, kids. I've got a whopper of a tale for you. Sorry about that last bit. I just figured I'd try to sound somewhat like I'm from here. It's an ink, though, so no going back now. Anyway, the here in question is Bowstring, Wyoming, and the year was 1992. I wouldn't be surprised if you never heard of this place. I didn't until I moved here from Los Angeles about five or six months before what happened. The long and short of why I ended up here is that I pissed off some people at the oil company I worked for, so the bossman decided to send me away. No real story there. Just do yourself a favor. If you ever find a kilo of coke in your boss's office, don't say anything to anyone. Just have yourself a white Christmas, know what I mean? I guess that's enough personal background. The stage is set with the fact that I never really intended to be here to begin with. But I found myself here nonetheless. So let me tell you about good old bowstring. There's a grand population of about 2,085 people, with my last count, 2,086 with me. We have a K-12 school, a gas station, a liquor store, and a goddamn true-to-life general store. Says that right out front of the place on a sun-faded wooden plank sign. Oh, and I think there's an oil field somewhere nearby. Otherwise, why the fuck would I be here? So yeah, that's that. Well, to an extent. If it sounds dull, then I guess I'm a better writer than I thought, since I described it so well. 
but I've made the best of things. The oil company could have fired me or gotten me killed, but they sent me here instead. I was thankful for that. Shit, I've learned a lot about what it means to be thankful. I've learned a lot about so many things I didn't even know could be real. I've seen some crazy shit that I could never have imagined to be real. Everything really started in about mid-December and the weeks leading up to Christmas in 1992. I personally never really cared for the holiday. Probably because Christmas was never really special for me. I was an only child and my parents were loaded. They spoiled me all year long so getting presents wasn't anything that stood out. Plus, my parents would always take off to some crazy place for the holidays and would leave me with my au pair, who was from the Gulf somewhere, so she didn't even celebrate Christmas. But you better believe that I was the only one who felt this way here in Bowstring. Christmas seemed to be a really big deal. My plan was to just not get involved. But that doesn't work in a place like this. The house I bought when I moved here is a small place in a small neighborhood near the edge of town. But you did hear that right. I do live in a neighborhood. A small development that was built sometime in the 50s. I guess they planned for this town to be something bigger. But that never happened. Probably for the best. I did pick this place because I would have neighbors. You know, people to notice if something happened to me. Plus, I was single, and when I came to check the place out, I got to meet some of the neighbors. The girl that owned the house beside mine was about my age, single, and exactly my type, by which I mean she actually talked to me. There isn't exactly nightlife around here, so I figured I'd shoot my shot. If worse came to worse, I'd at least still have the other neighbors to socialize with. As it turns out, my shot wasn't entirely off the mark. My neighbor, Stevie, was actually really nice. The single girl, not the old math teacher on the other side. His name is Jack something. Stevie, I guess like Stevie Nicks, and I got along really well. She helped me get settled in, made sure to check in on me, and told me a lot about bowstring, including about my house. She said that the former owner was, in his youth, also a worker in the oil industry. I guess he also used to be really social and outgoing, but as he got older, he eventually became a recluse. Eventually, his children forced him to move into a retirement home outside of Bowstring. Jesus, glad she told me this. And I'm glad I actually listened to her. Stevie was actually the one who talked me into celebrating Christmas. My plan was to just ride it out to New Year's, have her over to watch the countdown, and kiss her when the ball drops. God, though, you should have seen her face light up when she was talking about Christmas and how much it meant to not only her, but also everyone else in Bowstring. Around the start of December, when everyone was putting up their lights and decorations, Stevie made her way over to my place and asked if I needed help putting up my own stuff. I did inform her that I had nothing to put up, but would be happy to turn that favor around and help her instead. 
She insisted that she had everything covered, but did encourage me to get into the a Christmas spirit. To me, Christmas spirit meant bourbon-fortified eggnog. But a few days later, I was inspired with an idea to boost the general Christmas spirit. Maybe I could get Stevie a Christmas gift of some sort. After a while of thinking, I decided to set off to the general store and take a look around. Hell, I didn't even know what I was looking for or if they would have anything that she would like. But I set my heart to finding something. I must have spent more than an hour searching, perusing, contemplating, etc. before I found it. The perfect Christmas gift. Finally, I took it to the sales counter, paid for it, and set off towards home. What the gift was doesn't matter. What does matter is that it was something just slightly too large not to be noticed. I knew that Stevie might come over at some point between now and whenever I planned to give it to her, so I needed a good place to hide it. When I pulled into my driveway, Stevie was outside hanging up her Christmas lights above the front porch. I didn't want to be noticed carrying her gift into my house, nor did I want to be noticed ducking inside while she attempted what, for the sake of safety, should really be a two-person job. Seriously, kids, have someone hold the ladder. I got out of my car, leaving Stevie's gift in the trunk, and made my way over to offer assistance. You know, just being neighborly like everyone else around here. Being a reasonable individual, she did let me hold the ladder for her and hand her lights and hooks. We were out there in the Wyoming December cold for several hours. Just as the sun was about to set, we finished up and she plugged her lights in. God, I really enjoyed those few hours of small talk and conversation. The lights were beautiful. She was too. And so was the light snow that was starting to fall. Of course, it was destined to come to an end. With how good and peaceful I was feeling then, there was no way I could have even imagined in any fantasy the chaos that I was about to set in motion. That's right. What happened next? What happened in the 12 days leading up to Christmas was really my fault. First day of Christmas. I went home after helping Stevie with the Christmas lights on her house. I knew that I needed to hide her gift, but there was nowhere in my house that made any sense to me. There was a small shed in my backyard that I didn't have a chance to go through and clean out so I figured this might be the perfect place. Still not wanting to be caught, I waited until midnight, when I was sure all the neighbors were in bed, and then I set out to my car to retrieve the gift from the trunk. I was very careful to navigate through the dark and around to the back of the car. I quietly slipped the key into the lock, released the trunk, grabbed the gift out, and then finally closed the trunk. After this, I slipped through the gate to my backyard and up to the little tin garden shed. However, I didn't realize that it was padlocked with a lock that I knew I didn't have a key for. There had to be either a key hidden somewhere or an alternate way into the shed. So I set the gift down and started turning over some rocks and bricks that were scattered around the perimeter of the shed. 
I used a cigarette lighter to see what I was doing in the dark as I picked up one stone after another. After finding about nine or ten different spiders and centipedes, I was about to give up and just break the damn lock in the morning. I don't really do bugs or cold weather as I never dealt with such things in L.A. But hell, there were only two or three more places I hadn't searched yet. I reached for an odd gray stone near the back of the shed. When I picked it up, though, I noticed that it was way too light. It was either some weird pumice or an old plastic hide-a-key. Pay dirt. The second guess was right. I shook the thing and could hear something rattling around inside. I found a little trap door on the underside of the false rock, and inside was a short, rusty steel key. I was concerned that it was too old and corroded to work, but I tried it in the lock anyway. There was a lot of resistance in the lock, but the key turned and the lock released. I slid the shed doors open and made my way inside. I wasn't quite sure what I'd find, however. For all I knew, there were wild animals, stray cats, or swarms of spiders that had made their way in to find shelter from the cold. Thankfully for me, it was actually pretty empty. Shit, it was too empty. If I had the gift in here, and Stevie came over to help me with the yard or something, she might go into the shed and see the gift. But there were some old steel cabinets inside, so I figured that I could probably hide the gift in there and then mark them as off-limits because of hornets or something. So I set the gift on top of one of the cabinets that was at ground level and bent down to open it up and take a look inside. But now the fear of there actually being hornets inside was creeping into my psyche. Maybe if this were true, a little fire would show them who's boss. So I held the lighter with my right hand, just next to where the cabinet doors met, and slowly reached for the handle with my left hand. I had to work up the gumption to open the thing, so I just held the handle for a minute. Finally, when I had summoned the courage, I ripped the door away. I must have jostled the cabinet, though, because as the door swung out, a glass jar fell out and broke on the dirt floor. An awful-smelling black oil-like substance spilled out in front of the cabinet and oozed its way into the earth. I rushed my way back to the house to find something to clean up my accidental spill in the shed, but when I got back, the mess, oil, jar, and all, were mysteriously gone. Maybe I had seen it wrong in the late hour in dim light. Or perhaps the smell came from the cabinet itself and the jar had simply hit the floor and rolled into the darkness. While I was inside gathering cleaning supplies, I had also grabbed a flashlight, which I was engaged in sweeping around in an effort to find the jar. But it was nowhere in sight. If it rolled under one of the cabinets, I would eventually discover it when I cleared the shed out. But that would have to wait until after Christmas. Once again, I knelt down in front of the now-open cabinet and took a look inside. There were dozens of these jars and other containers, all of which were full of the black oil. I started to unload, carefully this time, all of these containers from the cabinet to make room to hide the gift. I just set them on top of the cabinets until there was enough room to place the package inside.
With my chore complete, I closed up the shed and went back inside my home for the night. I needed to shower off the dust and fall into bed until morning. Second Day of Christmas I awoke around 8 in the morning the next day. However, it wasn't the wailing of my alarm that had roused me from my nightmare-riddled slumber. It was the sound of shouting and a door slamming from the house behind me. I put on a robe and some slippers and made my way out the back door. Whatever was going on sounded serious. Serious enough for me to find Stevie on her back patio craning her neck to get a look at what was going on, and for the math teacher on the other side to be doing the same thing. After a minute or so of rubbernecking, the guy next door muttered something about not having to deal with this shit in Texas, then he turned around and walked back inside his house, slamming his own door behind him. I turned to Stevie to ask her about the disturbance, but when I made eye contact with her, she rolled her eyes, shook her head, and went back into her own house. I would have thought that people, who all lived in the same small town together their whole lives, would have a greater sense of community and compassion. But, then again, maybe this place was more like L.A. than I thought. Maybe no one wants to meddle in the affairs of noisy neighbors so early in the morning. Honestly, I thought nothing further of the matter after I went back inside my own house and got ready for the day. I had work to do, and civil matters could wait until that evening, the next day, or never at all. Hell, maybe I'd just forget the whole thing. Third Day of Christmas The previous day did get stranger, even after the shouting and door slamming incident. It just seemed like everyone was on edge. I understand the holiday season can have this effect on people, but still, things seem too exaggerated for this to be the case. Even the radio DJ really struggled when giving the weather report. In talking about the next week, he said, Look, it's fucking December. It's going to be cold. You don't need to be a fucking psychic to understand that. Jesus Christ, just use your goddamn head and open a fucking door. There, that's December in Wyoming, you stupid cunts. I sincerely hoped that this day would be better. I was feeling some Christmas spirit still, and really wanted people to come around. I really wanted Stevie to come around. But I woke up from another night of worsening nightmares and was feeling drained. Perhaps it would be a good idea not to turn on the radio today. Instead, once I had made my morning coffee, I decided that I would read the morning paper in silence. So I went out front to the end of the driveway where I discovered that I actually had no newspaper. I knew the paper boy. I had met him very shortly after I moved to Bowstring. He was a good kid. I even decided to tip him generously in advance to make sure that I always had my paper on time. There was no way that it shouldn't be here. But that's when I turned around to find not only my paper, but about a dozen other papers in a heap beside my house. The paper boy was there too, crouched over the pile doing something. I started walking towards him to confront him about the unusual situation when he heard me and turned around. In one hand, he had a book of matches, 
and in the other, he held a lit match. He made eye contact with me, and I froze. He held the match over the pile, grinning widely, and dropped it. I don't know what he did to those papers before dropping the match, but they went up in flames like a bonfire in a second. The kid picked up his bike and rode away at full speed as I ran to the side of the house to grab my garden hose to extinguish the blaze. They were burning fast, and I was trying to spray as much water as I could at the base of the fire, but it was still going. I shouted for some help, hoping that someone could render assistance. A moment later, the owner of the house across the street opened his garage door and emerged with a bucket of something. He very calmly made his way towards me, paused beside me, looked towards the flames, then back at me, then back at the fire. It seemed like he was ignoring my plea for help, like he was mocking me. But then he approached the flames and poured the contents of the bucket on the fire. There was a flash and an insane increase of heat from the blaze, and suddenly the fire was roaring at three times its previous size. The guy threw the bucket into the flames, walked back across the street and into his garage, and closed the door behind him without a single word. This was just the start of the day. Yeah, it got worse. But you get the idea. There is more to tell about what happened in the next few days. The fourth and fifth day of Christmas. If it wasn't already obvious up to this point, it became obvious in these next couple of days. Something was seriously wrong. None of this was normal behavior, and neither was anything a one-off incident. It was all complete and utter chaos. Outside news agencies and neighboring towns were picking up on the hellhole that Bowstring had become. Some of this news was making its way back to Bowstring. I actually left town on the fourth day of Christmas to just get away. I was staying at a motel off the nearest main highway. My goal was to get out, collect myself, then eventually head back to Bowstring after a day or two. In the hotel lobby, I picked up a newspaper with an interesting front-page headline. Violent crime in Bowstring, Wyoming, up 600% just days before Christmas. I took the paper back to my room where I read the article. It went on to list some gory details about robberies, vandalism, and even murder. Apparently, we had ourselves our very own serial killer in Bowstring. But with all the mayhem and disappearances, no one knew who it was. There was no real local police force, so the people of Bowstring had to rely on state police. However, many of these officers wouldn't come close to the town. They said it felt evil and infectious. The article also included a short paragraph about the history of Bowstring. The town was founded in the early 30s by a mix of migrant workers from China and Native Americans from the local area. They had planned for it to be a safe haven from oppression, bigotry, and intolerance. It thrived for a while, but in the late 40s oil was discovered near the town, and the same corporate assholes that I worked for moved in and took over. Legend has it, when the town's founders were forced out, 
They cursed the town and its new inhabitants, saying that evil has flowed into the town like the very oil it came to collect, and the evil shall be its undoing. The curse seemed to be just a legend until the early 50s when a similar hell to now broke out. However, after a few weeks of murder and mayhem with no explanation, things suddenly calmed down to the point where, for many years, even decades, Bowstring was one of the most peaceful and happy towns in North America, until now. Somehow this was my fault. I knew that. I needed to fix it, and I hoped to God that I could do this quickly. I spent the night coming up with a plan, and left the motel the next morning. The Sixth Day of Christmas I knew that if there was one person who could give me some answers, it was the former owner of my house. No one ever left Bowstring. People grew up here, lived here, and eventually died here. That meant that one of the oldest residents used to live where I did then. But I had no real information on him. All I knew was what Stevie told me, that he was in a retirement home somewhere in Wyoming, near Bowstring. My plan was to call around to various retirement homes and see if they had a resident from here. Fortunately for me, though, my search was quick. I pulled into my driveway after my short vacation out of town, got out of my car, and went to my mailbox. It was the locking kind that people who are paranoid about getting their mail stolen get. This meant that, if the mail was still running, I would still have mine, even if things were actually as bad as they seemed. There wasn't much in the mailbox other than some threatening letters and a postcard. The postcard was strange because I didn't know anyone who was traveling that would bother with such a thing. It was postmarked two days before this. All it said was, Merry Christmas, with a question mark at the end and it had my address listed in the message field. I threw the rest of my mail in the trash can, but held on to the postcard as I approached the entrance of my house. I went to unlock the door, but noticed that this chore was already done for me. Someone had broken into my house. I feared that the thieves were still there, so I grabbed something out of the garden to use as a weapon if I confronted anyone inside. I walked through the entryway towards the kitchen where a light was on. I raised my makeshift weapon above my head as I turned the corner to face the kitchen table where I expected to find the intruder. There was an old man sitting there, just kind of looking around at everything until he noticed me. Son, put the gnome down. What are you going to do? Bludgeon me with one of Santa's helpers? Who the hell are you and what the fuck are you doing in my house? I insisted. Yeah, I guess it's your house now. Gotta say, I don't care much for the decor, or the lack thereof. But at least it's clean. I have lots of good memories here. Hell, there's still time for you to make memories of your own as well. Name's Melvin. I used to own this place. The bank told me your name, but my memory isn't quite what it used to be. You're the former owner? Yeah, I haven't quite gotten used to it yet, though. Oh well, all things in good time. Please, though, I'd rather not refer to you as the buyer. What was your name? 
Cameron, my name's Cameron. You know, I was going to try and find you. I think I fucked up. This town's gone to shit and it's somehow my fault. Found my oil, did you? Uh, what? The stuff in the shed. I thought it would be safe there. Must have forgotten to put a protection spell on it or something. Again, my memory ain't quite what it used to be. Just tell me, and either way, we can still fix things. But did you throw the jars out? No, look, can you do me a favor and just cut to the chase? What the hell is in those jars? Oh, good, the old man said with a look of contentment on his face. They're all still there. Yeah, well, not exactly. Melvin's expression hardened as he sat up a little straighter and stared daggers into me. I, uh, well, I may have broken one. Jesus, kid, did you clean it up? I tried, but it absorbed into the dirt. So you didn't get any on you, not one drop? No. Wait, why? Is it toxic? You still haven't said what it is or what's going on. Kid, sit down. I guess it's story time. Melvin proceeded to tell me the secret of the jars. He moved to Bowstring in the early 50s, shortly after hearing about the curse. He got a job with the oil company and bought this house, my house. However, he didn't do this with the intent of realizing the American dream. He had a different motive. I guess Melvin was some sort of occultist, basically a wizard or witch or something. I didn't quite understand it all. He moved here to help contain the curse of the town and to collect the evil. It was this that was in the jars. The one I broke set evil loose on the town of Bowstring once again. Fortunately, it was only one jar. It's still powerful stuff, but not enough of it that we shouldn't be able to recontain it in a matter of days. But Melvin was an old man. He told me that he needed my help. I meant to contact him for answers. I knew this was my fault. And he showed up on my doorstep. I had to believe his insane story. There was now chaos when there should be peace on Earth. I guess, just like 2,000 years ago, Earth needed a savior around Christmas time. Lucky me. Maybe I would fare better than the last savior. The Seventh Day of Christmas I had asked Melvin if it was safe to stay at my own home, since this was basically the epicenter of the current situation. He said it was, so I invited him to stay with me. I figured it wouldn't hurt to have him around if he could help keep the insanity at bay. Thankfully, he agreed especially with what we woke up to the next day. At around five in the morning, I heard a thud from out front, then the screeching of car tires moving away down the street. Of course, I was quick to jump out of bed, grab the nearest heavy thing to defend myself, and I ran towards the disturbance at the front door. Rounding the corner from my bedroom, I found Melvin already at the door looking through the peephole. When he heard me come up behind him, he turned around and looked me up and down. 
No garden on this time, son? Just decide a book would do? Well, it is a fairly dense read. I figured, what the hell? What's happening out there? Nothing pretty. Looks like one of Santa's reindeer dropped by for a visit. He moved away from the door so I could look through the tiny eyepiece. Sure enough, there was a slaughtered, decapitated deer on the front path. Cautiously, I opened the door and went outside. It was really a grim scene of horror. Surveying up and down my street, I saw the same scene repeated on each of my neighbor's paths, with only slight variations on the general theme. There were disemboweled, dismembered, and decapitated deer at every house that I could see. Each one lay on a blanket of freshly fallen snow. A red bloom of the blood from each of the poor beasts formed a crimson halo around them. If it weren't so macabre, the classic white and red associated with Christmas might have actually been beautiful. The Eighth Day of Christmas Needless to say, much of the previous day was spent cleaning up the mess from the dead animals and avoiding the neighbors. There was arguing and fighting, shouting matches and fistfights between many of them that resounded around the block like Christmas carols from hell. Melvin had said that today, we needed to get real busy, real fast, cleaning up the rest of the evil. He had asked me if I had any silver. I was confused, but I knew that silver is commonly used in various types of magic. Like using silver to ward off vampires, or using a silver bullet to kill a werewolf. I just figured that it was maybe something like this. But when I told him that I only had a couple of silver salt and pepper shakers, he shook his head and said that it wouldn't work. He needed silver coins. Thirty, to be precise. He explained that, in the Bible, Jesus was sold out by Judas for thirty pieces of silver. Then Judas went and hanged himself because of the guilt he felt. Essentially, we could recreate a similar ritual where we use the silver to bait the evil in the town then coerce it or guilt it back into the jar. This would be especially effective around Christmas, the holiday that celebrates the birth of Jesus. Whether or not these stories in the Bible actually happened is apparently irrelevant for the magic to work. Enough people believe it, and both evil and good use this belief as a source of power. Of course, silver coins were a lot easier to come by when Melvin did this the first time around. The U.S. Mint stopped producing silver coins around 1965, so, almost 30 years later, they were a bit scarce. Therefore, I was given instructions to drive all the way to Cheyenne to visit a bank there that would have what we needed. This was a long trip from Bowstring, so Melvin agreed to stay behind and take care of other things while I was gone. I wasn't able to leave until late that night, however making travel plans to leave Bowstring while all of this was going on proved to be difficult. Most of the shops, including the local gas station, had pretty much closed down already. The town and everyone in it were rotting. That is, except for me and Melvin. Perhaps being enlightened to the horror of it all was keeping us immune. Leaving this place, even for a short time, would require me to participate in some of the evil. 
Sure, all I had to do was sneak to a gas station and pump gas without being noticed, but it was still something, the likes of which I had never done before. I was worried that I might catch the evil bug and be infected somehow. But Melvin assured me that I would be safe. He was looking out for me. So around 11 o'clock that night, I packed up and headed out. The Ninth Day of Christmas Cheyenne was further than I thought, so I ended up spending much of the day there. Being submerged in the slowly boiling pot of bowstring had apparently numbed me to the reality of how bad things really were. In Cheyenne, everything was peaceful. People were cheery and kind, even loaded up with arms full of holiday shopping. The streets were clean, kids played nicely outside, and the Salvation Army bell ringers would smile and wave, even if you didn't drop any coins into their pots. The sharp contrast really made me kind of dread going back to Bowstring when I had to. But there was work to be done. I knew that Melvin and I could fix this, especially if I made it back with the coins that I had finally picked up. Plus, I was worried about Stevie. Could she be a part of the chaos? I really hoped that she hadn't been affected. But I knew that even if she had, we could save her with everyone else. Everything could return to normal. The Tenth Day of Christmas Bowstring had practically become a ghost town by the time I got back. The streets were empty, graffiti covered the walls and windows of buildings, trash was blowing in the wind around the town square, and cars sat burned and destroyed along the roadside. I don't know where the people actually were, but there was no one that I could see. Maybe they had killed themselves off while I was gone, or maybe they had left too. I had no way to know, and no desire to actually find out. This time, when I pulled up to my house, I found Melvin sitting in a lawn chair on the front porch. He was holding a steaming cup of some sort, and had a contented look on his face. I got out of my car, looked around to make sure that I wasn't about to be assaulted, and then made my way up the path to the porch. When I got there, Melvin signaled for me to take a seat beside him. I did this, and we sat in the cold and quiet for a few minutes before I spoke. What are you drinking there? Hot chocolate? Earl Grey tea. Found it in your cupboard. Hope you don't mind. Not at all. I don't drink the stuff, but I got that box as a gift from a cousin in Denver, like two years ago. Hope it's okay. Oh, it's just fine. I love this stuff so much I'd drink it if it were ten years old and contraband. Of course, they don't have it at the old folks' home. Yeah, sorry about that. You can take that box with you when you leave here, after we clean up this mess. We were quiet for a few more minutes after that. I was trying to work up the courage to ask a burning question that had entered my mind when I got back into town. Finally, I decided to just ask. Hey, Melvin, do you think we can actually fix this? I mean, look at the town. It's already gone to shit. 
And where are all the people? Oh, yeah. About that. As soon as you left, I put a hold on everyone in town. Kind of like a curse, but it isn't doing anyone any harm. They're just... stuck here. I couldn't have anyone wandering off. I needed some damn peace. But yeah, we got a solid shot as long as you got those coins. Right here. So what do we have to do? When do we get started? Well, I'm gonna finish this tea, then go in and get some sleep. Tomorrow is Christmas Eve. There's lots of power on such a day. We'll do it then. The Eleventh Day of Christmas Christmas Eve I didn't think I'd really be celebrating it that year. But Melvin insisted. Said he hadn't had a home-style Christmas in years. Not since his kids were still at home, at this house. In the few days that I'd known Melvin, I'd actually grown quite fond of him. Like I said, my own parents weren't really worth a shit around the holidays. I never really knew my grandparents either. So having Melvin here in our humble little house felt real to me. I finally knew what it was like to be normal this time of year, even though the situation had become something quite different. We did everything that people should do on Christmas Eve. We sang Christmas songs, told ghost stories. You'd be thrilled by the kind of stories an old wizard has. We drank eggnog and cooked a nice warm meal. There was nothing fancy or opulent about our Christmas Eve. It was just... Well, it was just nice. But in the past several days, I'd become very familiar with the fact that nothing could last. Sometime, pretty late in the evening, I got a little buzzed on eggnog and decided I wanted to check in on Stevie. Melvin was cleaning up from dinner, so I slipped out the front door and headed over to her house. I knocked on Stevie's door, but there was no answer. I rang the bell. Still nothing. Finally, I looked in through the front window to see if she was even home. And there she was, just sitting on the couch. So I tried the doorknob and found it to be unlocked. I was halfway through the door when I heard Melvin shout from the front porch of my house. Son, what are you doing? You've broken the spell on her. I had looked to Melvin when I heard him shouting, but I suddenly turned to look at Stevie in her living room only to find that she was now running at me with a knife. She lunged at me in the doorway, but I turned quickly, and she fell through the door and onto her welcome mat. As she fell, she released the knife, which clattered to the ground at my feet. I picked it up and ran back towards Melvin. Melvin turned to go back inside as fast as he could, with me coming up quickly behind him. Stevie had made it back to her feet, and she was now rushing up in tow as well. I was going to close the door before she could get in, but Melvin stopped me. We need her, he said. She was coming up fast, and I didn't know what to do. Melvin ran towards the kitchen. I thought he was going to get a knife or something to defend ourselves with, but he called me into the kitchen with him and told me to make sure Stevie followed. I was reluctant to let Stevie in the same house as us, let alone the same room but I ignored the murder and rage in her eyes and obeyed Melvin. 
As soon as Stevie was through the kitchen door, Melvin said something in Latin, and she froze in her tracks and dropped to the floor. Then I was instructed to leave while Melvin set up for the ritual. Of course, I made him agree not to hurt Stevie or take any sort of advantage of her. He responded by making some insinuations about my parentage, nothing that I care to actually recount here, and assured me that she would be just fine. She was only there as a representative of the evil that had infected her. The Twelfth Day Christmas Melvin didn't call me back into the kitchen until the clock told midnight on Christmas Day. As I entered the kitchen, I found that Melvin had lit several candles of various different colors, turned off the lights, and had drawn a circle of salt around him and Stevie, who was still unconscious. The 30 pieces of silver were neatly stacked, six pieces high, in five columns in the middle of the circle, around a knife and an empty crystal bowl. Just a moment, he said as he handed me a piece of folded paper. I'm going to release her. When she awakes, you read what is on that paper there aloud three times. Do not intervene otherwise. Do you understand? I opened the paper. Again, the language was in Latin. I couldn't understand it, but phonetically, I could figure it out and say it. But what's going to happen? Why am I not supposed to intervene? Because it won't work if you do. And if it doesn't work on the first try, it will already be too late for me to fix it. What do you mean it'll be too late? Melvin, what's going to happen? This is powerful magic, son. It has a high price. A price that no amount of silver can cover. That's why I'm here. That's what the knife is for. Now, before you say anything, I am keeping my word. A girl won't be harmed, but I will. When I release her, the first thing she'll do is grab that knife. The evil that has infected her will drive her to do unsavory things. But she can't leave the circle, and neither can the evil inside her. That's why I'm inside of it. The silver is the bait. The rest of the evil in town is already moving towards it. I'm the price. My life will satisfy the cost of the magic. The knife is the tool for the exchange. And the bowl here, that will collect and contain the evil as that oil that you spilled before. That chant you are going to do will seal it and set the town to right again. It is the only way. Only way, my ass? You're just going to let her kill you? I'm an old man. I've got nothing left for me. To do this kind of magic, you have to pay with blood. You know that old rock in the backyard? That's a memorial for the last life that was given for this deed. But I was told it was just a dog, and that's what it says on the stone. Now you watch yourself. It was not just a dog. It was my dog. I love that animal more than you can imagine, and that love satisfied the cost. Now, unless you have a beloved pet you are willing to sacrifice for this, I see no other way. Plus, you don't know what this house means to me. 
I'd rather die here than in an old folks' home as some forgotten and neglected relic. Here is where I was happy for so many years in the town I helped set free from this curse. Here is where I had the best Christmas in years with you. I'm ready. You have to understand that. And I did understand. He had such conviction. And as far as I could see, with the way he explained it, it was the only way. I understood this too. But Jesus, to let a woman I was falling in love with kill a man, who in just a few days had become closer to me than my own parents, and for all of this to happen on Christmas Day, it was too much. Okay, Melvin, I get it. But can I make one change? Can I be the one to do it so Stevie doesn't have to? I'll make it easier for you. No, evil has to do it. If it'll make you feel any better, it won't actually be Stevie here. Just the forces that are controlling her. It won't be pretty, but I can handle it. Have you forgotten? I have the evil too. I was the one that spilled the jar to begin with. Not the same, son. You have to have done something to wrong someone in this town after the evil was released. You've done nothing but try and fix it since then. I stole the gas. When I left town to get the silver, I stole gas from the local station. I've wronged someone in this town. He thought for a minute and then said, you really do believe that, don't you? But you don't feel guilty. Yes, I do believe it. And honestly, I don't feel guilty. Well, sounds to me like you're right. Just, just don't forget to say the chant. Everything will be taken care of, I promise. I haven't forgotten anything this time. Already. And so am I. Okay. I promise I will make this easy. I will say the chant. Now, give me your arm. He extended his left hand towards me with his wrist up. I picked up the knife and looked him in the eyes. Are you sure you're ready? Yes. So that's what happened in Christmas of 1992 in Bowstring, Wyoming. As Melvin said, as soon as I was done with the ritual and once I had sealed away the evil that was the black oil, everything went back to normal. It is poetic that a savior would come to this small town with the sole purpose of sacrificing himself to save us. I guess, in a way, that really is the story of Christmas. Honestly, this happened several years ago. Long enough ago that I can finally tell you how everything ended up. First, the town was returned to the exact state it had been when I first moved here. All the damage had been undone. I think this was part of a separate spell or ritual that Melvin did, probably while I was in Cheyenne. 
I've learned a lot about his craft in the years since meeting him. I think he would have wanted it that way. Someone to carry on his legacy and responsibilities. Magic is real. Christmas magic specifically, though? I don't know about that exactly. But if that is the story and legend you believe, then we have no quarrel. People should respect the beliefs and traditions of others. Second, in terms of how things played out, most of the people returned to normal, even if they were missing a few days. Though I never saw my next door neighbor again. He must have gotten out of town before Melvin could freeze everyone here. But Stevie is still here. She and I eventually ended up getting married. She is learning the same craft as me. We are working together to keep this town safe from the horrors we witnessed. Third, I quit my job with the oil company. I'm now the librarian for Bowstring. You wouldn't believe some of the strange and random text I've encountered in this job. Let me just say that the story I just told you is by no means the strangest thing that has ever happened in this world. The stories are out there. You just have to keep open eyes and an open mind. And finally, if you're wondering what actually happened to Melvin, well, I can't really say. I know what I did that night, but after it was done, he, his body was just gone. I put a memorial stone next to the other one in the backyard. But I don't think he really left. There have been a few Christmas Eves since all of this, and I swear I can hear him singing Christmas carols around midnight. Even if I believe he is still here, hearing this still makes me miss him. But I am comforted by the joy we brought each other on Christmas Eve, 1992. I expected something entirely different, considering the title of the story. I guess I should be more thankful for the partridge in a pear tree I got for Christmas last year. This story was written, acted, and directed by our very own Philip Clark, who also composed the rendition of O Holy Night that was featured in the episode. We would like to thank everyone for seeing us through another year. And whatever traditions you keep, we wish you happy holidays. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. There are many more stories from the Hidden Archives that have yet to be shared. We hope that you join us next time for another Glimpse Within. This has been a production of the Rhodes Collaborative Experience, LLC. Please no reproduction, duplication, or bastardization of any content without written consent from RCXR's partners. Ex Animo, Ex Tempus, and Archivum.